Welcome to Season 2 of Fracktown Gumshoe, Holy Fits, based on the novels by Deborah Gaskill. Chapter 10 I pulled up in front of the squat, one-story house where Prosecutor Alicia Linnerman said Tate Slocum lay his head after a long day of uninjured farm labor. It was located deep in the flats, close to the center of town, on a dead-end street that ended in Fawcettville's heart, the McClatchy River, named for one of the original Micks who came to the area. At one point, the city leaders had tried to make sections of the riverfront friendly and warm, adding cast-iron benches and landscaped terraces along paved walkways. But those beautification efforts stopped about six blocks from Slocum's place. Instead of box hedges, marigold, and tulips edging a stone bike path filled with thin women wearing spandex and $200 headphones, Slocum had a view of an abandoned steel mill through the lens of a rusty chain-link fence and framed by stacks of tires. At night, the fires of the homeless lit up the windows inside the old mill, and they indulged in whatever pansia, crack, heroin, or alcohol that made all their pain go away. Slocum's house wasn't in too bad shape compared to the neighbors. At least he didn't have an old Ford Falcon in pieces in his driveway like the guy next door to him. The yard was trimmed, the paint wasn't peeling, unlike the other houses on the block. Two aluminum folding chairs with blue and white plastic webbing sat on the front porch with a plastic table between them. A PBR can stuffed with cigarette butts sat on the table. I knocked at the door. A hand moved in the front window curtain just slightly before the door squeaked open about halfway. There was Slocum, bent over a walker, giving me a painful smile that could have gotten him serious consideration for the Academy Award. Can I help you? He asked, attempting to stand up and squinting mightily. I'm looking for some hay, I said. I'm sorry, but I don't understand, he said. He winced heroically, clasping the door as if he needed balance. Does this look like a farm? Don't bullshit me. Of all people, don't bullshit me. Slocum tried to slam the door, but I blocked it with my forearm. I pulled a business card from inside my jacket and handed it to him. My name is Fitzhugh. Niccolo Fitzhugh with Fitzhugh Investigations. I know your story, Slocum. I know you claimed disability before a bad back after working for the city. I did. Working for the utilities department ruined my back. Look at me. I can hardly stand up. Really? Can you explain this to me? I pulled my cell phone from my pocket and clicked on a video of him throwing hay bales onto the wagon. You're fucked, my man. There's no way out. The city wants to file fraud charges against you. Fraud? You gotta be kidding me. I've got doctor's statements. I've got a judge's decision. Without thinking, Slocum stood up, throwing his arms up in disgust, his broad shoulders flexing. You don't think this is evidence to the contrary? Let me in. I think I may have a way out of this that can be beneficial for both of us. Warily, Slocum moved the walker from in front of him and opened the door wide. He led me to the kitchen table, which was, like any single guy's kitchen, covered with dirty dishes and beer cans. He pointed at the metal folding chairs, indicating I should sit down. How long have you been working at St. Matilda's? I asked, pulling out my notebook. I made sure he caught a glimpse of the Glock on my shoulder holster. I smiled to myself as his eyes widened in fear. Um, just a couple weeks. A buddy called me to see if I wanted to help them get the hay in. Uh, said a priest ran the place, uh, and paid really well. You know he's not a priest, right? Slocum sat back in his chair. No. He goes by Benedict St. Giles, but that's not his real name. He killed an FBI agent and conned an old lady out of 50 grand, among other things. No shit. No shit. 
I tap my pen on my notebook. What kind of farm operation does he have going on out there? Uh, he's got about 20 head of uh, Angus cattle. He's got a pretty good-sized vegetable garden, too. The nuns work that. He rents out some of the land to the other farmers, but uh, raises the hay for the cattle. He's got flowers growing around the front porch that he likes fiddling with. How many people live there? Slocum shrugged. Maybe 10, 12 at the most. There are three other men, monks, I think. He calls them brothers. And there's a bunch of women nuns. Only women can be nuns, Tate, I said. Yeah, okay, I grew up Baptist. I don't know nothing about them Catholics. But anyway, they're crazy about him. Call him Abbott or some shit. It's kind of creepy. One of the guys who bailed hay with me said he's romancing some of them, you know, at night when nobody's looking. My stomach turned, but I kept going. You want to look like the hero? You want me to put in a good word for the city about you? Maybe get these charges dropped or reduced? Slocum looked at me sideways. How? You go back there tomorrow and you find out if St. Giles needs full-time farm help. A janitor, plumber, chef, cook, bottle washer, anything. Then you offer to do it, and you tell me everything you see. Every word St. Giles says, every flush of every damn toilet. Anything that looks suspicious, you let me know. My cell phone's on that card. You call me. Day or night, you call me. How do I know you got any pull? How do I know this isn't bullshit? I'm just the investigator that the prosecutor personally hired to find your ass and make sure you get set up for defrauding the city of Fawcettville. You can believe it or not. If you don't, I can leave here, head right over to Alicia Linnerman's apartment and show her this video. Charges can be filed first thing in the morning. Or you can sleep on it and talk to me in the morning. If I don't hear from you by noon, I go straight to Alicia and you go straight to jail. Slocum flexed his massive shoulders with uncertainty and flipped his thin ponytail. I'll think about it. You also think about the two to eight you could be spending behind bars in Youngstown and decide whether that looks better than what I'm offering. Because I know for a fact, she'll throw the book at you. I closed my notebook and slipped it inside my jacket pocket. I'll let myself out. I don't want you to injure yourself any further. As I pulled my excursion away from the curb, I knew Slocum could make one of three choices. He could accept my offer and find a way to inform on St. Giles for me. He could accept responsibility for the fraud and turn himself in. Not likely, but you never know. Or he could rabbit, and neither I or Alicia Linneman would ever see him again. He wouldn't be the first to try that. It was a risk I needed to take. To minimize that risk, though, I'd be back after night fell with a thermos of strong coffee and more persuasive powers if Slocum needed them. The other problem was Alicia wouldn't approve of my scheme. She wanted Slocum bad. But would she rather have the collar on O'Malley's murder? Or take credit for solving an FBI agent's murder? I dropped the idea of stopping by her office to let her in on the conversation and decided to head over to the FPD to talk to Barnes instead. I always entered Fawcettville Police Department with a little trepidation. When I left the FPD, Chief Nathaniel Monroe was gunning for me. You would be too if I was screwing your wife. Maris Monroe was temptation and not just for me. Her antics resulted in divorce and Monroe's exit. Dave Baker, who had been my lieutenant while I was there, and who engineered my retirement before Monroe could trump up a reason bad enough for the city to agree to let him to fire me, was now chief. He was a good man, respected by the rank and file, and the leader the department needed and deserved. In spite of the department's turnaround, a lot of old-timers still looked at me with a smirk or a snide comment when I came through the door. That wasn't the case today. I stopped by the front desk to ask dispatch if Barnes was available. Within a few moments, he ushered me back to his cubicle. To what do I owe this visit, Fitz? 
Barnes sat down in his chair and leaned back. I just wanted to know if you heard anything on O'Malley's death, I said. Barnes shook his head. Nothing on the talk screen, of course, but probably some disappointing news on the needle marks. What? After you left, Doc Lombardo told me that the injection location usually indicates something by medical personnel to draw blood for other tests. We couldn't get lucky enough to have a heroin addict priest, could we? You know heroin addicts will shoot that stuff anywhere, even between their damn toes if they hide their habit. Anyway, I checked around and O'Malley's had his cholesterol level checked before he came into work this morning. Shit. I still think he was murdered. You go ahead and think that. Unless something else comes back, it looks like we're most likely back to a heart attack. Just like I thought originally. Barnes lifted his jaw defensively and then switched gears. I'm still interested in the guy O'Malley came to talk to you about, though. Benedict St. Giles? I tried to sound uninterested. Had Fiona talked to Barnes? Had Bridget or Mary Margaret finally gotten pissed enough to contact the police? That could change the game significantly. What about him? Barnes shrugged, trying to look as disinterested as I was. I did a little looking around. There's a lot of information there about fake priests who take money from little old ladies. None of them have your boy's name, but there's one who looks particularly ugly. Yeah? Yeah, a guy named Jeff Kovach. He's a suspect in a shooting of an FBI agent, Indianapolis, a couple years back. Damn, I hate to hear that. Barnes shrugged. We've got our eye on the situation out there. Everybody's welcome to practice their religion however they want. But if we get a word from the feds that this is our boy, we'll go get him, us and every deputy in the county. I nodded. I hope I've already pulled Eileen O'Connor out when the FPD make the connection between the Kovach who killed Fiona's husband and the man currently hiding behind the gates of St. Matilda's. Well, I gotta get home. Gracie's in Vienna and says she's gonna try to call me pretty soon. I can't talk to you into telling me the details of your case before you go. Not without a subpoena. See ya, Barnes. I grinned at him. See ya, Fitz. Back at home, Mozart the cat managed to chew on one of Gracie's house plants and puke it up in the middle of a living room rug. I couldn't remember whether I fed him this morning or not, so I didn't chastise him too much. I cleaned up the rug and opened up a can of food for him before twisting open another beer and tossing the cap into the trash can. One quick phone call, and I had pizza on the way to the door. Dinner tonight, and most likely breakfast tomorrow. I fired up the laptop. Gracie had figured out the hotel Wi-Fi according to an email she sent to me at work earlier today and would be contacting me tonight via Skype. I smiled. Maybe these few days of semi-bachelorhood were good for me. Maybe it was the challenge of the difficult case, but I was starting to feel like I was alive again. That boredom was falling away. I wanted to see Gracie's face. I was actually beginning to miss her a bit, even after a couple days. I carried the laptop and my beer into the living room setting the laptop next to me on the couch. She would be calling at 6.30 my time, which was 12.30 in the morning in Vienna, just about five minutes from now. Or maybe sooner. The computer made an electronic zinging sound and the Skype application opened up. There you are, Gracie's smile filled the screen. Over her shoulder, I could see the other professor, Barb Hawkinsworth, sitting on one of the beds reading. She was a short squat woman with short graying hair and heavy jowls the face of someone who'd been in the classroom way too long. I hope for Gracie and the students' sake, she was more fun than she looked. Hi, baby. Miss you. What'd you do today? Gracie smiled again. Just some general sightseeing, enjoying the food. I think I've put five pounds on my hips already. More for me to hold on to late at night, 
I said. Gracie blushed and shot a look over her shoulder at Barb, who took no notice to our conversation. Niccolo, please, you're embarrassing me. Oh yeah? I grinned at her. Put on some headphones and I can tell you in graphic detail what I have planned for when you get home. She threw her head back, her rich laugh filling both of our rooms. Barb Hawkinsworth looked up from her book and smiled briefly. My doorbell chimed. Hang on a minute, looks like my pizza's early, I said, setting the laptop on the couch. I had my wallet out and a 20 in my hand as I got to the door. Hello, Fitz. How are you? I thought I'd take you up on that offer. Fiona leaned against the doorframe. Her blonde hair was released from its French twist and hung down her back, begging me to touch it. Her jeans were tight and a pink t-shirt hung to those marvelous, marvelous breasts. She wore flip-flops and carried a silver flask in one hand. Gracie's disembodied voice came from her laptop. Who's that, Niccolo? What the hell's going on there? This episode is narrated by Casey Martin. Cracktown Gumshoe is based on the novels by Deborah Gaskill.